A reading from Judges chapter 9, verse 50 and following. The Abimelech went to Tebes and encamped against Tebes and captured it. But it was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to be burned with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper milestone of Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man trusted him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. We are continuing in a series in the book of Judges, and the title of the series is called Forgetting God. Tonight, as John mentioned earlier, the big idea is that we can rest in God's work. So I want to start with a question. I want to know if you have ever known someone who has a God complex. Just to be clear, I'll define it for you. A God complex is Someone, someone who has a God complex is someone who has an unshakable belief in themselves, characterized by consistently inflated feelings of personal ability, privilege, or infallibility. So notice, it doesn't stop after someone who just has an unshakable belief in themselves. Probably not something terribly wrong with that. But it's characterized by someone who has an inflated view of their ability, privilege, or infallibility. People with God complexes often display this in a few ways that you may have seen around you before. By fighting to get their opinion or to make sure that what they say is right, even if their opinion has proven to be faulty already. Um, Sometimes it looks like circumventing authority in order to get their way. Sometimes it could look like letting go of everything that they have to do just to grasp for the praise from others. Or maybe even by steamrolling anyone who gets in their way as they traverse this highway of destruction. So there are plenty of obvious problems with having a God complex but maybe none quite so glaring as we'll see tonight, which is a complete lack of self-awareness. The human experience is a shared one. Communities exist, whether families or countries, companies or sports. We have community because we are a people made in the image of a triune God. And God shares perfect community. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They eternally exist in harmony. So they have this community that is perfect. And without awareness that at the very basic level, 
we need each other to flourish, without that awareness, it's quite easy to fall into the trap of having a God complex. So, now that we've all thought of somebody else that we know who has a God complex, I want to offer one more type. Our own. I would be the first to raise my hand and the ones who love me and have known me for years in here would raise it as well to say, those things you just described, I've seen in your life. But whether or not we have a blatant disregard for others, the gospel shows us that we all have our own type of God complexes. We've all taken on this identity in different ways. Um, This identity or privilege or infallibility to one's own word in our spirit. So since we've all taken this on in our spirit, we have shown a blatant disregard to God. So it doesn't necessarily mean, for what we'll talk about tonight, that you have a blatant disregard for others, but that we all have shown in our sinfulness a God complex by blatantly disregarding the law of God. Does that make sense? So, in this way, we're all kind of like the moon, shining brightly in the night sky. But we're boasting as if it is our gray, sandy, mute rock surface, not the flaming radiance of the sun a few million miles away that's giving us our vibrancy. So at its core, a God complex says, all of this goodness is me. And if you know anything about astronomy, you probably know that the moon doesn't have its own light source, but it is just that, a mute gray rock that only shines brightly when the sun shows on it. So, um, it's with this absurd image of a God complex that we go into the next story in Judges. Last week, Daniel had a couple of chapters to cover, and he did it by paraphrasing this big chunk, this story, and then diving into a few verses, and we are going to do the same exact thing tonight. So, bear with me. Last week, if you remember, we introduced the next judge. His name was Gideon. Gideon led an army of just 300 warriors to defeat the Midian army who had held Israel captive for decades, and their army totaled over 120,000. So if you want to remember how that happened, go back and listen to last week's sermon online or read the chapter before it. Tonight we're going to talk about what happens next. This might be the little told story of what happened to Gideon and the 300. Um, Faraday read some of the last verses in chapter 9 just a moment ago and gave us a pretty decent spoiler alert to how the end of this sermon will go. As you saw, Abimelech having his head crushed by a millstone dropped from the top of a tower. And if you thought misogyny was a new thing, it's not. (laughs) You notice the first thing he said was, I don't want to be killed by a woman. So he got his armor bearer to come and stab him. So we're going to get to that in a little while. 
But what happened in between Gideon leading these 300 into victory and Abimelech being killed from a millstone dropped from a tower? After God delivered the Midian army into Gideon's hand, Gideon goes on a revenge course for the ones who survived that massacre. Now, it just sounds like a normal chasing at first sight. But once he catches them, we find out that really Gideon is trying to avenge the death of his brothers. Okay, so Gideon's brothers had been killed by the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. Zeba and Zalmunna had killed his brothers, and so Gideon said, having this victory and freeing my people is not enough. I'm going to pursue these kings and their remaining forces, and I am going to wipe them from the face of the planet. Um, so, as Gideon's going, he runs into a couple of different tribes of Israel. First, he comes upon Succoth. And in Succoth, he runs into the Ephraimites, who taunt him when he asks them to give his 300 men and him some food and water on their journey. He's saying, we're, we're out fighting for Israel, we need some help. And they say, oh, 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 why didn't you ask for help a few months ago when you needed it to conquer this army? You didn't need it then. You don't have the kings yet. I don't think you need help. You need to get them first. Now, we know that they probably did this because they were the strongest in Israel, and they were offended a little bit that Gideon hadn't asked them to help him defeat the army in the first place. And they were probably a little embarrassed that God had given this little tiny army of 300 this great victory when they sat with their hands in their pockets doing nothing. So they decided to take it out on Gideon by not providing rest. He continues on to another village called Penuel. Same thing happens there. Gideon promises both of them, I will come back after I kill these kings and destroy you. Remember, these are Israelites. These are not the enemy. And Gideon promises to destroy them for having taunted them. So um, Gideon continues on. He is he uh, kills the kings, he comes back and makes right on his promise, wipes out the Ephraimites, wipes out the uh, people of Penuel, and Israel praises him and says, Gideon, we need you to be our king. And he gives the perfect answer. What any great judge of God needed to give, he says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, for the Lord alone will rule over you. And his words, unfortunately, do not line up with his intentions or his actions because he quickly says, but wait, there is something you can give me. And we'll talk about that in just a minute in point one. But he continues, he has over 70 sons. Um, he names one of them Abimelech. Remember him from the millstone? Abimelech means my father is king. So Gideon, the judge of God, not the king, names one of his children, my father is king. And he eventually dies and becomes the first judge appointed by God in this book, whose rule or his service to the country ends in turmoil. There's no peace when Gideon dies. And if you remember, that's been a theme. Every week, we've been talking about a new judge. Every week, the judge dies, and there was peace when he died, or she. And now, 
there's turmoil. So after a few um, tumultuous years, uh, Abimelech is um, Abimelech is born of a concubine, so he has no inheritance whatsoever from Gideon, and he devises a plan to take control of the nation. He goes to the leaders of the nation, and he says, who would you rather rule over you? Seventy? Because remember, he had 70, children, 70 sons plus Abimelech. Would you rather him have 70 rule over you or just one? And they said, well, obviously just one. Seventy is going to have us go in all different directions. Abimelech says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. <clears throat> and Abimelech turns around and murders all of his brothers. <clears throat> so Gideon was the judge who killed Israelites, massacred two villages of them. And his son becomes the Israelite who kills his own family. After Abimelech does this, as Faraday read a moment ago, he is killed during a failed attempt to push everyone um, who was against him out. He was trying to wipe out everyone who was against him. He had driven them all into a tower of a false idol, and he was going to burn it down. And that's when he was murdered. He did burn it down as well, which we'll see in a minute. So that's the backstory. Everybody good? You tracking Gideon? Not so much. Abimelech? Not so much. But we're going to find out why, what, what mistakes they made, and how those mistakes teach us a little bit about God, work, and rest. So let's look at Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 24 as we continue. In Judges chapter 8, verses 22 to 24, the word of the Lord says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, So we're back when Gideon has just killed all of the kings. And the men of Israel say to him, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make one request of you. Every one of you give to me the earnings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So upon Gideon's completion of the mission, he is asked by the nation to be king. And Gideon, like I said a minute ago, correctly answers their request by saying, no, God is king and God is the only king. But almost mid-sentence, he ends his thought with a caveat. If you really want to thank me, don't make me king. Just give me all of your riches. So he has something to gain from this. He says, give me all of your jewels. He knows, like this says, they were Ishmaelites. They had plenty of jewels to give. And look in verse 27. Gideon, with the jewels, makes an ephod and with it, uh, and puts it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel hoard after it, the ephod, there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So an ephod is a jewel used by the high priest in order to determine the will of God in these days. It was kind of like a coin, right? I mean, it was, it was much larger, but it was like we do a coin today, heads or tails. And if it came up heads twice, it was a yes from God. If it came up tails twice, it was a no from God. If you got one heads and one tails, it was a sit back and wait from God. 
Gideon takes these jewels and designs not the heavenly ephod that the high priest used, but his own. He takes it to his city and sets it up there. In doing so, Gideon is proclaiming to the nation of Israel. Remember, he said, no, 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 I'm not your king. Only God is the king. And in the same breath, he creates this ephod, takes it to his city, sets it there, saying, if you need counsel, come to me. So we see a disconnect here. Gideon claimed no kingship, but he acted in a very kingly manner. So um, number one, if you're taking notes, is God reminds, uh, sorry, God's work reminds us of his provision. You see, Gideon had forgotten that there were only, there was only one who deserved praise and credit and glory and honor for the work that he decided to receive praise for. Remember, the series is called Forgetting God. And it wasn't that Israel forgot that God was there. Remember, Israel, uh, Gideon had just said, God is your king. He didn't forget who God was, but there was a disconnect between his head and his heart. He knew the right answer. God is your king. But he didn't act, feel, or know in his spirit how to live that out. Gideon decided he would make decisions on behalf of Israel. Gideon forgot that God was the one who provides. This is not long after Gideon had had an army thousands and thousands and thousands that we heard about last week that was cut down to 300. And God delivered 300 of them from an army of 120,000 plus. And now, just fast forward a short time, and he has quickly forgotten that God is the one who provides. So tonight, we first want to remember that God's work, what he does in those moments of provision like he did for Gideon in the 300 when he provides for you and I, that work is to be a reminder for us later down the road that he will certainly provide. I was talking to a friend of mine last week, and uh, she had been going through a tough time, but was desperately trying to remember that God was going to provide for her. Her co-workers, who were also aware of her troubles, asked her how she was remaining so joyful in these circumstances. They couldn't believe it. And I was able to encourage her, and, and she had been talking with them. And when we are believers and we go through something like that and we have joy, we can say what I told to her. Say something like, the reason I'm not worried about it is because God has taken care of me in the past and will continue to take care of me now. If it's something that you've been praying about, like Gideon had cried out to God, God, deliver me from this army. I don't have enough people. 30,000 is not enough to conquer this great army. And God said, you're right. It's too many. I'm going to take it all the way down to 300, and then I'm going to provide. And when God does that, we have the opportunity to say to those around us, the reason I have joy in this circumstance is because God has given it to me. I I prayed for it, and he gave it to me. Um, Sometimes, little comments like that can make a big difference 
not only in people's lives that you're talking to, but in our hearts. You see, there's a reason that there are hundreds of psalms, or over a hundred psalms in our Bible, which proclaim the goodness and the greatness of God. Sometimes, if you read a psalm every day, if you've ever been through a period in your life where you've done that, it can seem a bit repetitive. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Give glory to God. He is good. Praise God. Praise God. Sing to him. Praise God. In the morning, in the night, in the noontime. Praise God. Praise God. It gets repetitive, right? But the repetition trains our hearts to understand that when we see provision, it is not just for our selfish ambition, but it's for God's glory. Gideon had forgotten that God's work was to remind him of God's provision. Um, So, Judges chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, as we lead into point number 2. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, uh, Jerubal is another name for Gideon. So for some reason, the author thought it important to switch back and forth. So when you hear Jerubal, think Gideon. When you hear Gideon, think Jerubal. Does that make sense? So Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, and he said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that just one? Remember also, I am your bone and your flesh. So as I said before, since Abimelech was Gideon's son by a concubine, he had no rights. He didn't have a right to an inheritance, and he didn't live with the rest of the family. Or see, he tried to travel to the land of his mother's sons. So because of this, he was determined to write his own story. The God complex, this is probably the most common um, uh, living out we see of a God complex in our culture. It's the person with a chip on their shoulder. Right? They weren't born in the right family. They don't live in the right neighborhood. And they're going to go grab the bull by the horns and take this life for themselves. Got someone in your head for that? Got yourself in your head for that? Maybe. This is Abimelech. He did not understand point number two, which is that God's work secures our future. You see, when you are someone like Abimelech and you don't have a guaranteed future, all the other 70 sons had an inheritance. They were guaranteed a future. Abimelech had nothing. And in his nothingness, he sought to grasp anything he could find. He made incredible compromises in an effort to make a name for himself. And sometimes we do the same to acquire wealth, advance our careers, build a legacy, or even as uh, Steve Jobs is famously quoted for saying, all of his pursuits, everything he did was in order to, quote, put a dent in the universe. You see, Abimelech and we, in these moments of self-pursuit, these God-complex moments, fail to understand that there is only one who can put a dent in the universe. And he is the one who created the universe. You see, I have a bad habit of thinking the things that I accomplish are really purposeful and, and meaningful in and of themselves. Um, this isn't the case. In fact, 
the only lasting, eternal work that has ever been done in me or through anyone is the one that the eternal God does. When we lose our perspective and we start to aim for our own ambitions, when we lose that perspective, we can easily begin to fall into the complex of thinking that we are in control of our future. That in reality, but in reality, God's work is future work. And when we rest in what he has accomplished and follow his leading in, here, in the here and now, then and only then can we accomplish great things, lasting things, eternal things, things that can put a dent in the universe. It is only when we have this proper perspective that God is the one who is going before us, accomplishing the work. And he has chosen to show grace to those who trust in him and say, come with me. I want to use you to do this work, but I want you to maintain this proper perspective that you are doing my work and not vice versa. I don't work for you. I'm not a puppet, and you're not my master with your prayers. These are the things that we must remember as we effort and endeavor to pursue our future. Because I'm not saying at all that we should not pursue things in the future. But we shouldn't do it with the proper perspective, knowing that God's work secures our future. So, God's work reminds us of his provision— God's work secures our, fi- our future. And lastly, look with me in Judges chapter 9 and verse 55. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, this is right after the millstone dropped and the armor bearer stabbed. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his own home. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads because they fell in that tower and were burned. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. Called Havath, Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. Number three is that God's work ensures justice. Remember this rewiring of our thinking has had to happen throughout the book of Judges as we're seeing so many stories in this loving, merciful God's holy book about people being killed and slaughtered and slain. Remember this? We're having to rewire to be able to see that justice involves sometimes the shedding of blood. And in this 
uh, narrative, we have seen that Abimelech and these leaders of Shechem have gone on crusades, killing people, women and children alike, taking out entire villages, pillaging them, seeking their own vain pursuits, all as an affront to the holy God who created them. Yet, God's work established and ensured that justice would happen. So Abimelech and the men of Shechem's death was the justice that was needed to avenge these past years of turning from God. And isn't it interesting, speaking of God complexes, could you imagine being Tola or Jair? These two men combined served faithfully for 50 years. And they got five verses. Remember Gideon and Abimelech just had four chapters in this book and all they did was destroy and provide tumult and pillage and cause God to have to lash out on Israel, his own chosen people, to perform justice. They get all this recognition. And Tola and Jair, a few chapters, the beginning of verse 10, and says, they came after and they sewed it all up and justice was served and peace came over the city. You see, Gideon and Abimelech had one very paramount problem in common. They thought it was their job to accomplish the work of God. Sometimes they thought that the work that they wanted was as or more important than the work of God. Their biggest failure was that they failed to rest in the work that God had already accomplished. God's work reminds us of his provision. It secures our future and it ensures justice. Today, so that's a lot about a few thousand years ago, but today we read into this back through the lens of Christ. Since this happened, one has come who worked so that we can have rest. Today, you and I can know that God has provided and we can give him the glory that Gideon didn't because God has sent his son Jesus who secures our future and ensures justice by dying the death that we deserve for the sins we have committed. God's work on the cross carried out the punishment that you and I deserve for the ways that we have forgotten his provision, sought to secure our own future, and establish our own justice. Jesus worked so that we can find rest. And we praise him for that because he has provided 
And in moments, like my friend was experiencing this week, when you just want to throw your hands up and say, I don't know what to do next, we can remember God's provision like she did and say, God has always taken care of me to this point. I know that he will now. We can know that God secures our future ahead of us. Not having to be like Abimelech and grasp for anything, any crumb, leaving everyone beside in order to get a name for ourselves, He secures our future. Our identity is in Christ. And finally, we can have both of those things because God's work has ensured justice. When on the cross, Christ took the blame. He carried our shame, the shame of Abimelech and Gideon and Larry, so that we can stand before the throne of God, shameless, so that we can sit at our desk in a dead-end job and find rest. So that we can miscommunicate with our spouse and our friends and have riotous fighting around us and sit and rest. So, John started it earlier and I want to continue it now. Work is tough. But remember, God has accomplished the eternal lasting work. And because of that, we can find rest in our day-to-day work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Gideon. Thank you for Abimelech. Thank you that their failings and their strivings for their own ambitions were not in vain but you have used them to teach us tonight that we need to wait and rest in the work that you have accomplished. Father, we thank you that your word is alive and that the accounts from thousands of years ago of how your people wandered, sought you, and failed you can speak life into us now because Jesus has come and fulfilled all of those failings. He has filled in the gaps that were left behind and then he has reached down to us and said, come with me. Take on this burden that I have, which is light. So Father, tonight would you give us rest for our weary souls. And when we rest, would we rest in your work, in your work alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.